Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM, KSRQ, Thief River Falls, Minnesota. We're also online streaming to the masses at RadioNorthland.org, and that's where you can check us out. Yes, not only can you check us out live and in the moment, but you can go back and listen to this upcoming episode and over seven years of other Wrestling Memories episodes at RadioNorthland.org. We're also available for you smartphone users via TuneIn this morning. Glenn Braggett, uh, yes, and back in the saddle this week, and we have a very special edition of Wrestling Memories then and now, and uh, I am just so happy that I could get two of these guys together for a, a, a very cool conversation, because it, this uh, guest we're bringing in has been on the dream list for Wrestling Memories then and now. This was one of those we uh, just haven't worked out the logistics, and now we just as of late, we were able to get things worked out properly, and also I was able to have on with me this week. The Grizzled Vet is out on vacation, so uh, yes, we bring back a, a wrestling memories OG, Minnesota pro wrestling historian and author George Shire, the authority. Welcome back again. Getting back to your comfortable seat here on wrestling memories then and now. Glenn Braggett, it is always great to be back on wrestling memories and to sit next to you. Uh, actually, we're not sitting next to each other. You're up in Thief River Falls. I'm down here in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, but we do it together, tag team. And you know what? We do have a guest today that uh, we have been trying to sign to a contract for a long time. I'm going to share a little bit. I made some notes here, just jotted them down on paper before we're going to introduce him. And this will really tell you uh, just a little bit about this gentleman. He was an amateur in high school in Michigan. He had an incredible and impressive 27-0 record his senior year. He entered Michigan State University on a scholarship. And he spent a year and a half, left school to join the Army, a three-year stint serving our country, and then entered Southern Illinois University. It was at SIU that Bob began pursuing, and I'm not going to tell you Bob who yet, but Bob began pursuing amateur wrestling, and from 65 to 1969, he garnered a one-loss record of 66 and 18, which included an amazing 16 and 3 record his senior year at the age of 25. He was six foot one, weighing in about 270 pounds. He earned a position on the U.S. Olympic team in 1968, and he finished seventh place. With the Olympics over, Bob met up with professional wrestler Eddie Graham, and he began his pro career in Florida. Now, over the course of the next 20 years, our guest would be a constant headliner. As a heel, he caught heat from the fans when he aligned himself with the Army of Darkness crew that included Kevin Sullivan, Mark Lewin as the Purple Haze, Luna Vachon, and the fallen angel Nancy Sullivan. Now here's what really made this alliance of Army of Darkness even more bizarre, was that Bob was no longer using his real name, but that of Maha Singh. And even weirder was that he had shaved half of his head and half of his beard, and put face paint on the shaved side, quickly became one of the most despised wrestlers in the business. That hatred, though, turned to green. Bob also became one of the top box office stories of the 70s. Along the way, he won an outstanding 13 singles championships. He also held titles in Georgia and for ICW, International Championship Wrestling, and he held titles in the Mid-South. Also had tag team championships, 11 of them to be certain. Among his partners were legends like Buddy Fuller, Boris Malenko, Harley Race, Bob Orton Jr., and Jimmy Golden. And you fans of Sylvester Stallone's Paradise Alley might also recognize that Bob had a part in that 1976 movie. In July of 2006, Bob was honored by his peers when he was inducted into the George Trago Saluthes Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame. Today, he is retired, but our guest, Bob Roop, is one of the nicest guys you could ever meet. From amateur to professional to excellence, I am proud to have as our guest today, Bob Roop. Bob, welcome to our show. Well, thank you, George. Uh... I, uh, I, 
I don't know. My head has gotten so big listening to that introduction. I, I might, I might uh, have to pump out a few more words. Thank you very <laughs> much for that nice, uh, that nice intro. So well uh, deserved. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a real uh, I, wow. You cover a lot of years and a lot of uh, a lot of memories with those things. Uh, uh, so yeah, that was a nice trip down memory lane. Well, you you had started your career in 1969, and as I'd mentioned, you know, you had great success wherever you wrestled. I know you were in California, and you were in Florida, and you were in Georgia. I remember one time when you and I were talking, Bob, I asked you why you didn't come to the AWA territory, which is where I lived at the time. I live now, Minnesota, the headquarters. And one of the reasons that you gave me was that you didn't like the weather. Man, I could applaud you on that one. But is there any other reason that you didn't come to the AWA? Because I'll tell you this, you would have fit in so well with the formula that the AWA ran with, with that great amateur background and, and being a real wrestler. Well, there's a, there's a couple of, uh, there's, a, there's two ins- uh, interesting uh, coincidence, I guess. When I first was looking into going into pro wrestling, I was still in college. I went to Sam Muchnick's office in St. Louis. It was about 110 miles from Southern Illinois. I was getting ready to graduate. And Sam, our trainer there, for some reason, uh, knew uh, our athletic trainer, knew uh, Sam and, and arranged uh, uh, an interview or a meeting. I went to Sam's office in St. Louis. Uh, wow. He had all his memorabilia, his autographs, uh, pictures from Mickey Mantle and Joe Lewis and that kind of thing. And having been a sports writer as well as a wrestling promoter. And right. uh, uh, Sam, uh, it was funny because I had another wrestler, Southern Illinois wrestler with me, a guy named Larry Kristoff, who was a much more accomplished amateur than I was. He had taken a second in the world a couple of times. And, but we were both college graduates. And the first thing Sam said to us, he said, you guys are both college graduates? And we said, yes. He said, oh, well, I wouldn't go into pro wrestling if I were you. <laughs> and uh, I thought, that, I think that's ironic because that was, uh, uh, but, you know, we assured him that we at least wanted to take a look at it. But Sam, um, once we assured him that we were uh, intent on at least taking a look, um, he said, well, there's two promoters that, that really go for amateur wrestlers. One is Vern Gagne and, uh, you know, in Minnesota. The right. other is Eddie Graham in Florida. Well, I grew up in Michigan. So, you know, Michigan weather. I think at the time I was in Sam's office, uh, um, I probably talked to my parents. My dad had been out shoveling snow off the sidewalk that morning. So uh, when it came time to make a choice, I said, well, uh, given my, uh, given a choice, I think I'd like to start in Florida. And I, when I look back at that, I'm really glad I did because, um, and I'll, you know, I'll lead into answering your question in a, in, in a second here, George, the real reason why I never came up there. Um, first of all, Jimmy Rashi started there and yeah. Byrne made him carry the ring and referee for, I don't know how long. But he, it was like uh, uh, there was a, you know, Florida had a, a similar situation of uh, with Matsuro Matsuda. I just wrote about it today for this uh, this forum that I have, uh, uh, Bob Root Project, the, the uh, championship wrestling for Florida years. I wrote an article today about Hero, which broke in guys like uh, Lex Luger and uh, uh, uh uh, Hulk Hogan, uh, Terry Bollet, uh, Paul Orndorff, uh, uh, and so uh, he he tra- he broke those guys in. But what he did is he made them condition for like a four or five months. So they they didn't do any any training about how to be a wrestler. It was all conditioning. He'd make them run, do push ups and squats for hours every day to see if they had the, you know, the dedication to drive and to, and to do it. And sure. after about four months, uh, then he was, then he started that they, and about nine out of 10 guys never made it, but 
the guys are stuck, then he'd start training them. Uh, Vern would would try to show a guy, uh, to, I think, I don't know, I never knew the guy, but I, to, I think that his idea was that a new guy had to prove that he was really uh, intent on being in the business by, uh, you know, being humble and showing he was sincere. So he had them refereeing and carrying the ring. Well, Jim Rasky had taken third in the world in 1962 in, in Greco-Roman. Right. And first medal, first American ever, well, maybe the second to ever medal in, uh, certainly first heavyweight, to ever medal in Greco-Roman. And plus, Jim was always, had been a, was a very humble, you know, very low-key, low humble guy. And it learned... What, what you don't realize is that uh, in Florida, I started right away. And within six months, I was working in semi-main events, working with top guys, working with Larry Henning after being seven months in the business when he came to Florida. Uh, I got some main events early while Jim was still carrying the ring. So I was getting all that experience that he could have been getting. And Jim and I were friends before we, either one of us got in the business. We were in the Army together in 64 and became dear friends then, and I love it. And uh, the fact that what, what I feel is that Vern stole the year from him, uh, however long he made him carry the ring, by not starting him right away as a wrestler. He stole the year from him. And you say, well, that was just the first year. Ah, that was, he stole a year from the end of his career. Or he was making big money because Jim Russell was as long as he could, I'm sure. Yes. And, you know, you get to a point where you can't take it and, you know, your body, you're beat up or whatever. Well, he stole that year. Maybe Jim's best year was at that time was maybe a hundred grand a year. Well, he stole that from him. And, uh, I, it, now here's the other thing. And the main reason in the 72 Munich Olympics, um, I was on the 68 team. I met with the, our wrestling was three days before the end of the Olympics. We trained the whole Olympics a day. Uh, we, I didn't go to see anything, no swimming, no track, nothing. We trained two two-hour sessions uh, in the morning, one in the afternoon. In between, you were resting. At night, you'd go out in the uh, common area and mingle with the other uh, Olympians from different countries. The Russians are really great guys. And, and uh Iranian, some of the great wrestlers in the world. And, you know, it was kind of a social area that you can mingle, but we didn't go into Munich or you didn't go out drinking or anything like that because we were training. Sure. And so the practice was uh, eight o'clock the next morning. So you were in bed early. So we only had three days uh, to, uh, after we, I think we had one day after our, our, our competition was over to go out and enjoy Mexico City. So Conversely, in 72, I took time off from pro wrestling and went to Munich with my girlfriend. And uh, we were staying at a, a little, they call it a bread and breakfast over there in Germany. It was called a pension, like a pension, but it's pronounced pension, like a bed and breakfast. And uh, we're staying about a block from the wrestling venue. Uh, and one day I was heading into the venue and Vern and Billy Robinson were coming out. And I didn't step right in front of Vern, you know, like to block his way. But I moved like where I was halfway intercepting. I didn't stick my hand out, but I put my hand up a little bit to try to get him to at least stop. And I, was, I wanted to introduce myself. And uh, uh, he looked at me, and he looked at me long enough. And then he just went around me and kept going. Wow, and uh, uh, that that lost me. Uh, I I uh, I write about Jeff Russell for Florida because it's the one territory I went back to a couple times. Most of the territories I went to, I never returned to mm-hmm. because I didn't, you know, I didn't like the, the way the promoters, uh, you know, I wasn't happy there. So I liked I liked Joey Funk Senior and Terry Funk very much. But their territory was brutal on the road, so I wasn't. I didn't get in the business to be unhappy and miserable, and be living in a car all the time. Right. I wanted to travel, travel the world, and so. Well, anyway, uh, the weather was part of it, but 
uh, Byrne gave me the impression of being a, a arrogant, uh, rude, uh, ignorant. And is he still alive or is he gone? No, Vern had passed away uh, going on, well, it four years ago he passed away. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, let's put it this way. I interpreted his uh, his behavior to allegedly, because he can't defend himself, to allegedly be rude and egotistical. And why would I want to go to work for someone like that? I wasn't in the business to make money. I was in the business to have, to travel, have fun, see the world enjoy life. Um, you know, I was making enough money to, to do that. Think about it. You go to Japan, they pay you to come there. They pay your airfare. They put mm-hmm. you up in a hotel. They take you from town to town. Uh, they pay you to do it. You're not even a tourist and you're getting to see the country for the first time in the nicest way possible. So whether I was making 600 bucks a week or 6,000 bucks a week didn't matter to me. I mm-hmm. mean, I, it sh- I guess it should have, but it didn't. And uh, I I don't regret anything now. I'm happy with my two boys and I own a home together, and and you know I'm I live a happy life. So that was the main reason I didn't come to Vern. It wasn't just the weather. Uh, and what was ironic, and this is cruel on my part, but when I met Vern at the uh, I think it was at Newton at the Hall of Fame, he mm-hmm. was already a member, and the year I was inducted. Um, he came. I think he had. A, I think he was. He had an attendant with him. He had had some some problems, dementia or something, where he had been in a, a assisted living facility. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, anyway, he was good enough. I mean, he was he was in and out, but he he was good enough that he could come to the. And when I met him there, uh, I don't know if he had was you know in in a his mind was in a vacancy or whatever, but. He treated me basically the same way he did in Munich. He looked at me like, I don't have a clue who you are, and uh, and just kept walking. So uh, I thought that's irony. Uh, they were separated by, let's see, 72 and 2006, uh, 28, 34 years. It's kind of a cruel irony, but um, the first time he did it deliberately, the second time he just didn't have any choice. Uh, right. But, you know... I wrote about this, and I wrote that Byrne gave a lot of people happiness and a lot of great memories by his wrestling promotion. I had no beefs about him as a promoter. Uh, that I thought, that, you know, that I get. I didn't work for him. He was smart enough to use Nick Bachwinkle for ten years as his champion. That was a brilliant move, and and uh, you know, he gave a lot of people happy memories, and and you know, wrestling fans are my the people that keep me alive. And so I, 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 I appreciate that. I'm grateful to him for that. Yeah. You know, just me and it's me and him personally, that, uh, I just wasn't going to go to work for someone I knew was going to be rude to me. Uh, you know, and, and he never asked me either. I mean, it's not like he was begging me to come up there or anything. He never, I never, he never called me or made any, you know, I never heard from any promoter I worked for. Oh, Bernie was asking about you. So, uh, you know, I think that there was mutual uh, antipathy. You know, there wasn't any real desire on his part and on mine either. Uh, I know if I'd have gone up there and, uh, uh, I, I, you know, Billy Robinson is very lucky. If he tried to mess around with Jim Rashby like he did with some of those guys, Jim would have torn him a new one. I mean, a brand mm-hmm. new one from the mm-hmm. back of his head down to his heels. But uh, Jim was probably being respectful. I know if Billy had messed with me uh, that way and tried to humiliate me, I would have, I would have, uh, I would have told him that Wigan didn't tell him all he needed to know about being a wrestler. Uh, you can, you can hook guys who don't know how to wrestle, but try right. to do it to do it with a real wrestler. Uh, no, I'm sorry, my friend. I know what you're going to do before you even try to do it, and I know how to counter it. And the other thing is, I can I can be on I can have an ankle hold on you and still get my thumb in your eye, um, because wrestlers can do that. <laughs> well, I think so, the one thing that you I think the one thing that you really point to, and I'll tell you this: it's unfortunate that you had those experiences with Vern, uh, and it certainly was Vern's loss, I think, and the AWA. 
But the one thing that comes of this is that you were in the business at a time when we when you had the luxury to have different territories to go to and that was something that you know obviously the guys today in the business don't have that they're you know you don't like one territory you really are not going to go anywhere because there's no place to go right. and in that era you know if you didn't like florida you could have went to california if you didn't like that you could have went to texas and and so on you, you know i mean there were just so many opportunities and it looks like for you, the cards were lined up, the stars were aligned, and, and you obviously found your success, and that's what made you great. So it all worked out. Well, yeah, and you're right, George. It was uh, it was it was great that you know you could you could uh, you know once you learn how to work a little bit and you had a bit of a rep, uh, you could you could apply. You applied for work at other places and. Uh, you know, they'd look at at least look at you, and yeah. uh, so you know, I got to, I went out and worked with Shires in California. What an experience that was! Uh, but you know, I ended up being his booker, and the first one he ever had, and uh, uh, we tried to take his territory. Uh, and I wasn't my idea. His co-promoters, the guys he'd been working with all these years in the towns, were the one that approached me about it. But. Uh, uh, that was an experience, and uh, then uh, same thing. And in, in going into Tennessee with Ron Fuller, uh, same situation. And uh, but you know, I, I again, I I was talking about it earlier. Uh, Florida was the only place I ever really went back to. Um, I had been to Georgia once before. I went to work for Ole Anderson in '82. But I only stayed there a month. They brought me there. Jim Barnett wanted me there. They were having the the fight with Gunkel and Gunkel, and right. I was I was working for the other side. And Barnett brought me in. Uh, he wanted me to. Uh, I think Gunkel was sending a guy a wrestler they had named Jim Wilson. So I knew oh. Jim. He, he was a football player who got into right. wrestling. He was uh, he was you know he was a good big nice big guy, but he wasn't any, wasn't a Jack Briscoe or anything like that, or, you know, or a Buddy Rogers or even a Harley Race. He was, uh, he was decent, but he wasn't anything special. And, uh, but they had, he was a big, tough guy, I guess. And they had him coming and sitting in the audience at their shows and he was working for Gunkel. So, uh, the first night I went in there, uh, I, uh, you know, I thought, okay, I'm here to be a, a worker. And uh, Barnett uh, asked me to go out there and uh, challenge him. And, uh, oh, I was hot. Because, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I just told him, I said, look, if he makes any sort of a move of any kind, if he says anything, disparages me in any way, I said, I'll invite him in the ring. But if he doesn't, I said, no. And uh, within, I think, during my match, and of course, Wolf, you know, Wilson wasn't going to do that. Uh, it wasn't because of any friendship. He knew I could, I could, I could do whatever I wanted with him. He couldn't wrestle, you know. And uh, I don't care if he fights. I've taken on karate guys and everybody else, and and been able to handle them. I mean, it, you have to be lucky sometimes. It depends on who gets in the first lick. But uh, uh, Jim wasn't going to. In fact, he wasn't there to mess with anybody. He was just right. there to embarrass, just there to embarrass them. So, uh, but during my match, Barnett was talking to Ken Patera, and he he said uh, he said, "Oh my God!" He said, "I don't know what that Bob Roop is even doing here." So I wore out my uh, my welcome that first night because I wouldn't go out there and be a shooter. Well, I mm-hmm. didn't get in the I didn't get in the business to be a shooter. Um, there was a great shooter in Florida named Carl Gotch. He oh, couldn't yeah. get work. He could not get work. He was handy. He was available. He couldn't get one booking with championship wrestling for Florida because people were scared to death of him. Mm-hmm. So he was doing sixteen hundred squats a day and nine thousand push ups and you know, and in great shape. He would have been a great heel. He was a rugged looking, nasty looking guy. But guys would were scared to death of him to work with him and and they should have been. Uh, he had a little bit of what Billy Robinson had, that attitude right. of, I've got, I've got to show I'm tough. 
this this business is is not you know this business is not on the up and up but I've got to show I'm on the up and up here and there I'm gonna uh, I heard that great story Ray Stevens told me that Billy got wise well, got smart with him one time in the ring and uh, Ray waited for him the first time they had a chance to talk in private in the back he said. Uh, Robinson, I worked 78 days last year. I made $103,000. He said, you ever mess with me again? I'll never work with you again. Turned around and walked away from it. And uh, Billy uh, Billy never messed with him again. You know, he wanted to work with him because he got a good payday. Oh, know, sure. Working with Ray Stevens. So, uh, you know, and that was the way Ray, Ray wasn't going to shoot with him. Ray well, just there- said, hey, I just, I just want to work with you. Yeah, uh, there was an interesting story, Bob, that um, Billy Robinson had the reputation with a few of the wrestlers where a lot of them didn't want to work with him because Billy could be tough to work with in the ring. And some of them just said, I won't work with him. And I asked Nick Bockwinkle one time when we were talking and, you know, Nick and Billy, I don't think there's any two wrestlers in the AWA that wrestled more during the 70s than those two in, in just really classic good matches. And each match always seemed to be different. I mean, they were so good together. But I asked Nick one time, I said, how do you, you know, every, a lot of people don't want to work with Billy or Billy doesn't want to work with them, whichever way you want to do it. And I asked Nick, I said, how do you work with Billy? And Nick says, what I do is I go into the locker room the night we're going to wrestle And he says, I usually just sit with Billy for a minute, and I say, William, what do you want to do tonight? And he says, I let Billy have his say, and we go out, and we end up having just the great matches that we do. And he said it was just a matter of that little bit with Billy, and I don't know if this is true, this is what Nick told me, that that, uh, Billy would cooperate and just put on a clinic for you, and him and Nick had great matches. That makes perfect sense, George. In fact, I always like having mysteries unsolved for me, and you solved one. Because when Billy and I worked a couple times in Florida, uh, I saw, I looked at some old records. We did, we did work a bunch of times, which I don't remember. The matches mm-hmm. I don't remember are matches that went well, or at least there wasn't anything exceptional about them. The one I do remember was I was getting heat. And right in the middle of it, there was some little spot show on Saturday night, you know, 100, 200, 300 people there. And just in the middle of, you know, I was obviously he always leading the match. And just in the middle of it, he grabbed an arm or a bar or something that made start a comeback. Uh, I hadn't even gotten anywhere. I hadn't even started building the heat yet. And he didn't, he just did it. He didn't ask me about it or whatever. And I wasn't going to shoot with him. But right. I just told, I, I told Louie Tillette was a booker. I was helping him. I said, Louie, don't book me with him anymore. Mm, I said, I'm yeah. not going to shoot with this guy. Uh, I, I mean, even if I did beat him, we were going to get hurt. Now, let right. me say something in Billy's favor. I saw him and Tony Charles work an English-style match. Okay. I don't even know where it was from. It was one of the best matches I've ever seen in my life. It was like Bob Orton working with himself. It was it was one of the best matches I ever saw. Was that English style of counter move and move and a lot of not not holding them, getting holds yes, but not staying in them. Not a lot of hitting the ropes. A lot of in the middle of the ring wrestling, in right. and out of holds. Just beautiful stuff that you couldn't see through. You couldn't see that they were letting each other do it. Right. It looked it looked authentic. It was just beautiful. And I, you know, I just thought, man, what a shame that, but then, you know, uh, doing some of my history, I realized that Billy, I thought maybe he was just Vern Stooge and Vern kept him around and made a living for him. Uh, he put, apparently he had a good career up there. So he the, must have been. The main, thing, the main thing about Billy, and since we're on that topic, is that obviously he was a guy who demanded respect, probably well-deserved but he wasn't going to give it to you until you agreed to, for lack of a better way, the way Nick said it to him, what do you want to do tonight? And Billy would work with anybody in the ring. And you mentioned Tony Charles. Now I heard the, I heard about those matches. I want to say without looking at the records that they were in Knoxville, Tennessee or someplace like that. But here in the AWA, we had 
Billy Robinson wrestle Horst Hoffman. And I don't know if you ever came across Hoffman during your career. But there, no, I've heard, I heard of him, but no, I never saw him work. I don't think their styles, the matches they had. Uh, Horst was always given the the heel role when he went. In fact, he worked with Baron von Raschke as a German team when he was here. But when he wrestled, and I saw him wrestle Robinson three or four times, and the two of them literally put on a clinic, and just to me, they were some of my favorite matches. And you could tell that there was that respect, and they made it look so easy, like you said, transparent. And I, I would I would say that's probably similar to what you saw with Tony Charles. Well, so we talked about we talked about the good things about Billy, and because yeah. nobody either all or one. But see that attitude, that other attitude, right? Uh, of okay, if I don't have my say so or whatever. Exactly. There's going to be a problem. That is absolutely unprofessional to the max. And I totally agree with you. I do. It's you go out there. A worker works with anybody. Under I mean, a good worker works with anybody. Guy having a bad night. His wife left him. Because uh, you know his girlfriend showed up at uh, their at Thanksgiving dinner, and the wife wasn't real happy about it. Whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you go out there and work. Uh, that was that was the, uh, the 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 way you were considered a professional. You did not let uh, if you were upset with a guy, you hated a guy's guts. The guy stunk. The guy was drunk. I worked with guys who were drunk, almost puking in the ring. You still had a show to put on, sure. and uh, you know, and you still had to. You know, I was a heel. It was my job, my responsibility to try to have a decent match, no matter what was what came out of the other dressing room. And, you know, that was the epitome of, uh, you know, the saying was that a good worker could work with a boomstick. Right. And I never got to that level, but I, I, I did my best. I, that was my, my goal was to do that. And I would adjust, you know, the, the other thing is being able to adjust and mid midstream through a mistake or, or, you know, an accident of some kind, an injury or whatever, and right. still try to get your, you know, try to get your point across. What a lot of people didn't realize that a wrestling show, from the time it's booked to the time it goes to um, the PR people to put out in the form of programs or ads or TV ads, and then the wrestling show, the matches you put on, the interviews and all that, every every second of that is advertising. Exactly. Including the matches. The matches themselves. Right. Are live advertising. I'm talking about from the first second of the first match. Even if it's cold and there's nothing uh, at, at stake, no belts or anything else, what they're advertising is entertainment. Good, a good. A, you hope to have a good first match. You don't put your clunkers out there first if you're smart, right. and uh, you get the, you know, you get some excitement and and some anticipation going, and uh, and then the rest of the match you're the rest of your matches, you're, you're building angles or you're blowing off angles or you're adding, uh, you know, you need to add the steam to one, maybe cool off another because you almost had a riot last time or whatever, but they're all, they're all advertisements. And so right. anything that gets in the way of that, when you got a building, say in Miami, you got 15,000 people there and you, you have a sticker rule of a match that goes for half an hour and you waste all that time and don't get your advertising across, it costs money. Exactly. And it's, it's expensive and it's, it's extremely unprofessional. So anybody that did that, to let their ego or whatever get in the way of, uh, of, of, of going out there and making a living for everybody um, was, was just unprofessional. So, so as we talked about, you know, this type of an attitude in wrestling, if you personally were to name a couple of guys in the business during your career that you really, really enjoyed working with, they were just, as you say, you, I always heard the term wrestling so-and-so was like having a night off. Uh, who would a couple of those guys be that you really, when you were booked with them in a program, that you said, this is going to be good and I'm going to enjoy this? You, you got a couple that come to mind? 
Well, let me start worse first with a tag because that's harder. My okay. tag team athletes were Bobby Orton. The only one I remember was one where Steve Kern got hurt. He got he got uh, he got a, a cut under his chin that needed some butterflies. That's mm-hmm. the only reason I remember the match. All the matches are so good that that I don't remember them. Uh, the singles. Uh, I loved working with with Ted DiBiase. That was that was uh, easy money. I mean, it was that was real easy work. Uh, I like working with with Junkyard Dog. He wasn't okay. he wasn't the easiest guy to work with, although uh, in a way he was because you had to keep it simple. Uh, you weren't going to take him down and get a hold on him in the center of the ring and have him down in a front face lock. He was a guy that needed to stay on his feet for most of the match and and uh, and you know and be the dog. And right. plus, I personally I liked him. I, I had a great deal of liking and respect for the guy, and I enjoyed working with him. And and again, the matches were easy. Now, in terms of having a like a barn burner of a match, uh, 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 give and take, in and out, the counter move, move and not counter move. Uh, that kind of thing. No, there wasn't much of that with JYD, but still, I enjoyed working with him. Uh, uh, let me think technical type matches. Uh, uh, some early on, Don Curtis, when I first started. Oh, sure. Uh, I'm trying to think. If I don't remember, if I don't remember the match, that means that the matches were good. Uh, Steve Kern, I enjoyed working with Steve, but the thing is, our first match was like a blow off. I insulted his father. We did that angle where I call oh, his I father. Remember that. I remember the POW. That. Yeah, he's a POW for years in Vietnam. In case Steve came up with the idea, his father mm-hmm. okayed it. I talked to his father before I ever agreed to do it. And uh, the first match uh, was Steve was like insane with fear. You know, it was it was like the blow off. And I, after I had murdered his whole family and and uh, just uh, 10 generations back. So the match started out in, in, in like uh, intense gear, <laughs> you know, like a race car driver, you know, on 200 miles an hour. <laughs> and there was, there was no way to go from there. You, you couldn't right. go much higher and you couldn't back down. So our program only lasted about, I don't know, four, three or four months, which is pretty good. But, um, it was uh, those matches were were kind of fun because they were short. Uh, if I stayed out there too long, I mean, I had to run all the time because if I stayed out there too long. He should have killed me. Uh, he, you know how he had every right to take chairs and hammers and you know anything he get his hands on the ring bell or whatever and, and clock me with it. Uh, so and and it wasn't right to stop him. Oh, I did. I would stop him. I'd foul him somehow, maybe use the ring bell on him and stop him briefly and get some heat on him. And then he'd make a big comeback just to give the people, their, you know, the fans their money's worth. Right. But uh, we start out in, I think we start out in lights out matches after the, you know, Dusty, Dusty Rhodes hated it because the angle was so hot so quick that they, they added it to the next week's card in Miami. It wasn't even booked. They mm-hmm. added it as a lights out match, and because uh, the TV was going was going to be seen in there, and uh, so we went on after Dusty, and he didn't like that at all. Uh, he probably grew most of the house, but I'm sure we helped. It was sold out, uh, but we did good business for everybody. We, I think we, well, everybody, every every story a rusher tells, ah, the building was sold out. You know, uh, yeah. they, you know, there was never an empty seat in anybody's story, but. I think we did. Well, of course, we had undercard having Dusty Rhodes uh, and how, however many heels they were going to feed him every night uh, mm-hmm. on the undercard. On the undercard was a big help, and people like Jack Fresco and and uh, you know, it was a great talent in Florida. So, uh, how did the um, how did the Maha Singh uh, gimmick come up? Was that your idea, or was that the promotion idea? And and how was it working in that role? Well, it was Kevin's idea, and uh, the way it was pitched to me was the guy was going to be a multiple personality. He was going to be Maya Singh and Bob Roop. Right. That's what that's what the shaved head was. 
it would have been beautiful. It would have been fantastic. The only reason I actually agreed to do it was that I was going to be able to be Bob Roop also. Okay. And I could be out there in the ring as Mayhaw saying this fanatical Indian, Pakistani, whatever I was, hacking and, 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 you know, ripping and tearing and snorting and screaming and frothing at the mouth. And all of a sudden I could like snap and grab a hold and look around like, Hey, what am I doing here? You know? Uh, and I could do the same thing in an interview. I could be talking to Gordon as Bob Roop and then all of a sudden, you know, twitch a little bit and then uh, shove Gordon and turn the table over and run in the ring and attack somebody or attack somebody in the audience or something. I, it was a fantastic gimmick. I, it sounds Kevin, like it. Yes. It was, but Kevin screwed me. Uh, when we got down there to Florida, uh, he, was, he didn't ever develop Bob Roop. And mm-hmm. he had the mic. I couldn't force him. Uh, so uh, within, uh, without, after with, within one week or two weeks, it was too late. You know, where was Bob? Bob needed to be, you know, uh, somewhere in the vicinity, in the neighborhood, you know, within the first week or two. Right. Uh, on the first interview somewhere. Uh, maybe, uh, uh, but again, I... Um, I, I was getting older. I could have tried to force it with Kevin, uh, but I I don't know. I lost some of my enthusiasm. We had tried to go opposition twice. I tried to start an uh, try to start a union for the wrestlers in Knoxville, and got sold out by one of the boys. And then I, uh, you know, I kind of lost my enthusiasm. I lost a lot of respect for the boys, uh, some of them anyway. And then. Uh, worked three years with Ole Anderson in Atlanta, and well, I got I worked in the office uh, and as a road agent. I was in my early forties, and and I, you know, I started amateur wrestling when I was thirteen, so I've right. been in it for quite a while. And so, uh, you know, I uh, I kind of lost my, you know, my my uh, fire, I guess you could say, for uh, working was harder. Uh, I didn't have the agility and, uh, I didn't have this, I didn't have the discipline to keep myself in good shape. And so, uh, you know, I, it wasn't anybody else's fault. It was on me. But, uh, uh, when I went back to Florida, uh, I, I liked the idea of the, the Mayha saying and the Bob Roop because Bob Roop was over in Florida. You know, right. I mean, uh, I, I could have gone back there just as Bob Roop and done much better. But the idea of this new character, uh, uh, you know, of being both, to me was, uh, you know, and then you get, you could think you can extrapolate, you can work as a single, and which way is this guy going to go? Sure. Uh, sure. You know, he's going to go on a real critical match against some guy in a, who's forced to wrestle in a wheelchair for some reason. Who's going to show up, Bob right. or Mayha? And you know, you had all kinds of great things you could do with it. Uh, I, I could, I envision things like booking Andre against Meha and Meha's ready to go out there with an ax and kill him. And then the, the master, the bell rings and Bob, Bob shows up and cop goes, Oh my God, what am I doing here? <laughs> hey, Andre, how's it going? That, that, here. that is fabulous. It really is. Well, again, you can see you can see the the potential it had. It could have been it could have been beautiful, but I I ended up getting a booking job, and that was a full time job. Um, uh, I had Lex Luger, and he was brand new. I needed him. I needed I needed him to be a, a number like a top babyface immediately, and right. so I took him under in hand and drove to the towns and back with him. I was talking to him all the way about, you know, trying to give him a seminar in the car about how to, about ring psychology. And, um, and then I put him, I booked him with guys like Barry Wyndham and our, uh, team, uh, Ray Candy as a team and told Joe and guys that could lead him, you know, could work with him and, right. uh, uh, and, and we did okay. You know, uh, we had heels that could lead him around. He looked like a million dollars. Uh, yeah. But you know, I had Barry and Kendall Wyndham, 
but I didn't have any other, I didn't have any other top baby faces. So I, I needed, uh, I needed Luger. And so, uh, I worked as a manager. I grew my hair back and it's kind of, I, I never did wrestle after that. I don't think maybe, yeah, I think may I sing was kind of my last, my swan song, but, um, you know, it was, uh, it wasn't a, it wasn't a very long career. I think 15, I worked 15 years straight with maybe uh average of six or seven days off a year. And then once I got a few months off, I lost a booking job in Florida. I took off about eight months and I realized I enjoyed being off. And mm-hmm. so my motivation, I went back and worked with global wrestling Alliance, Alliance in South Florida, build, trying to build a company, but I wasn't wrestling. I was doing the TV and the booking. Uh, but I had, you know, I had a good career. I went to, you know, 12, 13 foreign countries and wrestled all over this, this country. And, uh, you know, have, I had a good time. I had a lot of fun. Uh, you know, uh, I'm glad I started in Florida. I've got to, you know, imagine you go to the Bahamas and Puerto Rico and all these vacation spots and you're getting paid to go there. There you now, go. Of course, now if you go twice, you say, oh my God, I'm bored. I'm booked in Puerto Rico again? Oh, no. No. Well, there you go. I'll tell you what. Let's see if we can uh, pry Glenn Broggett out from under the ring and bring him in here. Maybe he's got a question or two of you, and then uh, we'll be winding up our show. All right. All right. Hey, yeah, yeah. I'll step in here. I just, uh, for a brief moment, I've been enjoying uh, listening to you guys uh, go back and forth. It's been a, a fun, always a listening, always a, a learning experience here whenever, uh, George, you get together with a great guest like like Bob Roop. Uh, you know, Bob, you've really started to make the rounds here in uh, the modern era, uh, chatting on the podcast circuit. Uh, you're, you've definitely been a guest. Uh, I've listened to many of uh, your, your spots, uh, whether it be on the 605 with Brian Last or uh, with uh, you know Jeff Baldrin and uh, Barry Rose, another uh, friend of uh, the program, and also uh, y- you ended up on a few others too. But you know, isn't it amazing how like something that happened forty years ago kind of got you back into the circuit and getting your you know you're a guest for something that just happened. You know, it, this wasn't just something that happened to two years ago. This was something that somebody brought up again and it became a topic. Does it amaze you the whole thing involving uh, Ron Fuller that that it got such life here in, in 2019, so many years after the fact, and, and and new fans are starting to discover this and, and seeing the YouTube uh, uh, video that you guys or the video that you shot that it was on YouTube here. Isn't it just kind of an amazing that you know something happened 40 years ago? People are. are, are commenting and they're animated about and, and really kind of bringing you back and, and bringing you on these programs to talk about your career and not only this incident. Well, yeah, you talk about amazing. Uh, first of all, when I saw that plan B, uh, I, I remember making it, but I had, I had no idea where it was when it showed up on the internet. I almost had a stroke. I, I just thank God that, uh, McMahon had already exposed the business, uh, you mm-hmm. know, because, Back in the cafe days, uh, if it was still that way, and that had come out, and all of us go on there and say we never had a legitimate match, I mean, our name, you know, it would have been my name today. I, I didn't want to be back, be, be be brought back into the the spotlight in a sense as a pariah, you know, as a leper, uh, a traitor to the business, uh, as it was because uh, McMahon did the thing in '89 with uh, sports entertainment. What's a smart business wise? He saved himself, I don't know, probably half a billion dollars in, uh, in, uh, athletic commission taxes. Uh, so it was a very smart move, but, uh, you know, he did expose, you know, oh, it's sports entertainment. It's not real. Well, we had done that, uh, that, year, that, that thing that showed, uh, in this last year was done, uh, in the seventies, you know, long before McMahon did his thing. So I'm really glad that didn't show up earlier. Uh, although, if you'll note, if you go look at it again, we never said anything negative about wrestling fans. We just talked about our own careers. We didn't say anything like, you fans are out there being uh, hoodwinked or you're, you're fools or you're marks or anything like that. What was happening was we had tried to go opposition and the trust that was the National Wrestling Alliance, or wrestling itself, not just it wasn't just all the promoters, whether they were AWA or whoever, were going to try to quash any 
any group of the boys that were going to try to start their own promotion and start a union, they were going to all work together to quash that McMahon and everybody. I mean, McMahon senior and everybody. So we had Crockett and Goulas and, uh, and uh, Jarrett and uh, Graham and Barnett uh, all coming at us uh, to put us out of business in Knoxville. So we made that plan B as a way to try to like threaten these guys that, okay, you're trying to put us out of business. We're going to try to hurt you too. And, um, that was what that was about. But, uh, yeah, the idea of being brought back to life, uh, 40 years later, yes. Go, to be able to go to these hall of fame things or to go to the fan fest and have people come up and say, Oh God, Bob, I hated you got so bad. You know, it's good to see you <laughs> have your autograph here. Let me buy your book. You know, anybody anybody from another planet wandering on that one would go, oh, these other things are very strange. They're talking about how much they hate that guy and they're buying books from him. But um, That's pro wrestling, uh, man. That's pro wrestling. That's the beauty and the magic of it. Well, it keeps, you know what? What it does is life affirming. It keeps, it keeps us alive. And that's why I have so much um, regard for what both you guys are doing. George, you as a historian, uh, keeping uh, records and 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 now in the digital age, they'll be there forever, uh, as long as they have a civilization uh, of what people did. You keep guys that have been long gone, are still relevant. Uh, Buddy Rogers, who says, uh, you know, uh, Gorgeous Joe. I saw I saw a match of Gorgeous George wrestling the other day. Uh, Marie Laverne, who added on her, uh, on a messenger and, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, having, uh, having all those things and, and being part of it again, uh, being relevant again. Um, well, but I need to mention before we go off the air, um, unless you did it a half hour ago, um, uh, <laughs> we pulled the hook. No, nice no, we, we're live. It's nice when you can pull a hook with a switch. You don't have to actually hook, hook up a big heifer like me. But um, uh, uh, I've got a book uh, I've been working on for four years. It's called Wrestling for Saddam. Uh, in 1972, I went to Iraq to wrestle Adnan Casey. General oh, yeah. Adnan. You know yeah. him. Warren had yeah. him up there. and you yeah. know uh, General Adnan. Well, Casey was uh, the promoter over there. Uh, I didn't find out until 2015. Uh, that was, uh, let's see, 20th, I was That was 43 years later. I found out that the promoter for our matches was Saddam Hussein. And Saddam's, uh, Saddam's pay- idea of a payoff was that if you got beat to thrash, uh, he beat Andre the Giant two straight falls, about four minutes each fall. Um, that was his second match. He beat a guy named George Gordianko, who was a great wrestler mm-hmm. uh, all over the world. He couldn't wrestle in the States. Uh, he was blackballed because of some political reasons, but he was uh, was one of the best wrestlers in the world. Lou Thuz went 90 minutes with him in Edmonton and said he's one of the really true top wrestlers that he ever wrestled. And uh, Gordy Ankle was first. He got beat too straight. A uh, year later, Andre got beat too straight, uh, or 18 months later, actually. And then a year later, uh, they brought me over there, and guess what I did? I beat him. They brought me over there to beat him. Casey had gotten so popular that he was worried that Saddam was going to give him an acid bath because that's how Saddam got rid of people. Uh, he tortured him as long as he felt like it. Uh, well, the ones that he wanted really immediately get, uh, he just shot him, you know, wherever they might happen to be, you know. Uh, but the ones he wanted to really mess with, he tortured him for a while, and then he threw him in an acid bath. And uh, uh, Casey had seen the bath, and so he knew that uh, what might be in store for him. And Saddam would do things. He, Casey wrote this in his book. Saddam I was just going to bring that up, that... Uh... She, Casey Adnan, did write it in his book, and I'm holding his book as you talk. Yeah, uh, when I read that book. I, I saw him on. He was he was plugging the book, George, with uh, Mike Mooneyham. 
Right. And he saw, he brought up Saddam Hussein for the first time. When he did, about 500 puzzle pieces in my head came like special effects, like George Lucas was running it, came clicking together to form mm-hmm. this picture. Oh, that's what was going on over there when they tried to murder me. I thought it was just an accident. Yeah. I didn't realize it was an, absolutely an attempted murder. Uh, I thought it was just bad security. And uh, uh, man, you talk about you talk about being upset or being hot. Um, well, I started. It took me about a year and a half to even get started because I had had to get over PTSD, PTSD first. I had gotten over it over at forty years. Um, a lot of had a chemical help with alcohol and you know downers and things over the years to help me sleep mainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, same treatment that a lot of uh, PTSD guys, poor vets are are, are doing it today to so self medicate to you know just try to sleep at night, keep from killing themselves. And uh, uh, I'd gotten over it as soon as I started thinking about it again. I locked at my door. I went out and bought a shotgun, and I thought I was—I actually thought I had dementia. I'm only 77. I mean, that seems like probably ancient to you guys, but uh, I thought, oh, I'm having dementia. Well, you know, what's the matter with me? Well, I have a good friend that's a psychologist in Florida. I called him and talked to him about it. He said, well, what, what are you doing different? He said, why would you do this? I said, well, I'm writing this book about... Uh, uh, be almost being murdered in, uh, in, in Iraq. And he said, well, uh, he asked me a couple questions. He said, well, you got PTSD, Bob. Hmm. It's coming back. It's coming back. What's happening? These memories that you're bringing back are bringing back the stress associated with those memories. They're coming back. That's why you went and bought the shotgun. I live in a neighborhood that's perfectly safe. There's nobody going to break in my house. There's three big guys in here. I live with my two sons. We, we're going home. Uh, nobody's going to break in here. You know, it's a nice neighborhood, good neighbors. Uh, but, you know, I have a shotgun next to my chair. Ready. I, I had the safety on, but I still had it loaded. You know, and that's absolutely bizarre behavior. Well, uh, I figured out why. And so, yeah, well, anyway, I'm writing about it. And uh, I'm getting close to being done with it. Uh, uh, it's been in three different ways, and uh, but I keep what I said earlier. Uh, when when you when George when you settled the the mystery about Billy Robinson about Nick Bachwick going and talking to him first, mm-hmm. where Billy where Billy thought he was in charge out there, then that that was fine. Then he was a great work fine worker. Then that was that was the problem he had with me, in that one match. I don't remember it in any other matches, but in this one little spot show, because there was only a couple other people there, I was I wasn't really telling him what to do, but I was leading by, example, you know, by what I was doing. I mean, I wasn't forcing anything. I was working, but uh, he decided, you know, he's just going to show me that uh, he didn't have to listen to me if he didn't want to, and uh, so you know, I ended the match and. Uh, I think I was doing a job anyway, so uh, or maybe not. It doesn't matter. Um, but uh, uh, you, you explained that mystery. Billy felt like he didn't have control, and that maybe I didn't respect him because of that. I don't know. But um, I explained that. Well, uh, I, I've solved a lot of mysteries about the way Casey acted over there. Right. Uh, uh, it make a great movie, I'm telling you. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, let's get the book first. But I right, thanks for letting me mention it. Well, for Saddam. I was going it's to say that uh, when you finish your book, uh, I know Glenn and I would be more than happy to have you back on, and we can talk some more. And I'm sure there'll be things in the book that'll bring up a lot more uh, of your outstanding life and career. I want to thank you, my friend. It it has been fun to have you on and you don't know how much respect I have for you. Um, it's always great when I've met wrestlers and become friends with them and I love your friendship and I appreciate you. And I know down the road here, we're going to hook up again and, 
at one of the reunions. It's just that uh, the last couple of years that hasn't happened. So, but uh, you're in my prayers. I love you, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on with us. George, just let me just say one thing. I know I'm long-winded, but we haven't seen much of each other, but the friendship that we had developed in those times when we did, that friendship has never abated. It's never lessened. It's never grown old or tired. It's still there. We're old but gold friends. We just haven't seen each other much lately. Yeah. So I look forward. I look forward to. I look forward to, to seeing it again and adding some luster to that gold. Well, very good. You're very kind, and I thank you for that. Well, time is uh, just about out. We're, we're just about out of time here on this edition of Wrestling Memories. For George Shire, our guest Bob Roop, I'm Glenn Broggett. So long for now.